Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. On the 14th and 15th of February 2019, during interviews broadcast on the Michael Reid Show, a number of false and defamatory comments were made regarding Gerry Adams' TD concerning the murder of Tom Oliver. We unreservedly retract these false statements, which we acknowledge should not have been broadcast in the first place. We apologise unreservedly to Mr Adams. Tuesday morning, the 3rd of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The five-year term of the new European legislature is underway and politicians are back working just four months before the UK's expected departure from the Union. The leaders of the 28 countries have been deadlocked for three days trying to agree on how to fill the top jobs. It seems that they reached a compromise and Ursula von der Leyen will become the the next president of the European Commission, Charles Michel, president of the Council, Joseph Burrell, EU foreign policy chief, and Christine Lagarde will be the next president of the European Central Bank. The nominations need to be ratified by the Parliament and MEPs will also elect the next President of the European Parliament later today. It will be the second day at work for MEPs after the drama of yesterday, which saw some refuse to stand and Brexit MEPs turn their backs while the EU anthem Ode to Joy played. Protests were plentiful and support was in abundance for the MEPs who were not allowed to take their seats. Uh, the Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy captured to the mood of the Parliament's support for Catalan independence. I want to congratulate all the MEPs who have been elected and been here today. But unfortunately, some elected MEPs have been denied access to this House. Three representatives of the Catalan people have been denied representation in this House. This House needs to stand up for democracy, needs to stand up for human rights. If this House doesn't value the votes of the people of Catalonia, then the credibility of this House itself will be undermined. So I ask you today, Mr President, to make a statement on behalf of the elected MEPs of this institution and therefore reinforcing the value of democracy and human rights across Europe. Thank you, Mr President. Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy speaking in the European Parliament and on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Three empty seats in the Parliament yesterday. 
Yes, um, it's a bizarre situation. Um, as you know, there is a long-running and very um, intracted dispute taking place in Catalonia as a result of the then Catalan government's decision to hold a referendum and the violent reaction of the Spanish state on that date. The subsequent decision of the Catalan government to try and enact the results of that referendum, which actually saw a number of elected representatives being imprisoned. Now, people can have all different views in relation to the rights of Catalonia to self-determination and Mm -hmm. the rights and the validity of the actions of the then government. But what's happening um, and has happened in the course of these European elections is much more sinister. First of all, the Spanish state tried to change the rules that would prevent some Catalan candidates from even running for election, um, and particularly um, Carlos Puigdemont, the former um, president, and others. That was being challenged legally through the European Court, and all the indications were that the European Court would have overturned the Spanish decision not to allow those. So the Spanish government allowed those candidates to stand. Those candidates subsequently received over 2 million votes, 2.2 million um, votes. Mm. And what has happened since is that the Spanish government has changed its own rules that effectively mean that these MEPs can't take their seats. Because so, they have to uh, swear an oath of uh, allegiance and because they wouldn't, Madrid didn't send their names to the Parliament. And they had to travel to Spain to sign a declaration that never that, that if they had have done would have resulted in their immediate um, arrest and imprisonment. Uh, And one of the three was in exile? Yes, two of the three actually are in Mm. exile. Um, So, um, yes, and one is obviously in prison, which um, um, complicates matters, but all objective observers would agree that the imprisonment and the charges are trumped up. There is no European arrest warrant for these people, even though they're in exile, the reason being is that the Spanish government have accepted that a European arrest warrant would be subject to legal, um, legal challenge in almost, and in almost any other member state that legal challenge would be successful because the charges are, are essentially made up charges. So the point that I was making mm-hmm. and many others were supporting yesterday was that we in the course of our term as MEPs will pass judgment and pass very strong resolutions in relation to the upholding of the standards of democracy and human rights and rule of law in every part of the world. We'll talk about South American countries, Mm. we'll talk about Middle East, we'll talk about African countries, we'll talk about Asian countries. And the difficulty is is that the credibility of the European Parliament is shattered in those regards. Well, one of the things we'll talk about over the next five years is the shift in the balance of power, I take it, but in this particular incident, uh, that shift hasn't occurred yet. Yeah, unfortunately, because the Spanish political parties are so strong, they're part of the big political groups, the EPP, um, um, the Renew Renew group, the SND, the three large groups, both within the European Parliament and Mm. within the other European institutions. And because... They are so dominant in all of those. Um, It appears that European leaders are willing to turn a blind eye to what are flagrant breaches of democracy and human rights. And, you know, I know people would um, argue that, you know, I should be raising Irish issues, which I will be. Um, But yesterday it was a discussion on the accreditation of MEPs. In other words, how MEPs would become officially mandated to carry out their duties. And it would have been remiss of me not to point out the fact that the rights of people who vote for Catalan MEPs are just as 
um, valid as the rights of people who vote for me or any other MEP. And the only, um, I suppose, disappointment that I would have is that not more Irish MEPs have stood up for the democratic rights of the people of Catalonia in the way in which they would be so vocal if something like this was happening in other places in the world. Okay, the assumption is uh, that the top jobs will be ratified uh, by the European Parliament and we're being told uh, that this is a very good day for Ireland because of uh, the attitude of the individuals who will assume those Mm -hmm. posts to Brexit and the Irish position. But is it a good day for Ireland uh, when we look at uh, some of the statements of uh, the incoming President of uh, the Commission and what Ursula von der Leyen has been saying about a European army? Yeah, no, it's not. Um, This is a situation, again, where the Irish government was essentially irrelevant in the negotiations. Everybody that the Irish government had indicated that it was in favour of was subsequently ditched. This was basically a stitch up by Germany and France. Um, And in my view, the, the decisions reached upon yesterday were the exact opposite of what Europe needs right now. To put in place a right wing German um, minister who, as you say, is one of the most avid advocates of EU militarisation policy is not what the EU needs right now to have a situation whereby, um, you know, this is basically the old boys club Mm. ensuring that they remain um, in power and that they remain control. The idea of the Spitzen candidate um, process has basically been binned. It was something I would have been sceptical about from the start. As you know, I don't believe anybody voted for an Irish MEP um, candidate on the basis Mm. of who their European um, Spitzen candidate um, was. But it was one of those things that um, parties like Fine Gael would have pointed to as a sign or a signal of an increased democratisation. Well, just in the last week or so, we've been... Just in the last week or so, we've been talking about an EU battle group, which will be led by Germany. Uh, This is uh, the German defence minister who's going to assume this position of European Commission. We're also talking about Irish operations in Mali and uh, if that effectively tore up our our neutrality. And we'll just hear a little bit of what Ursula von der Leyen has been saying about a European army. NATO will be always the military alliance for collective defence. This is for sure. Um, but uh, there are fields where um, Europe is needed and where do not see NATO. Uh, for example, if we look at our neighborhood, immediate neighborhood in Africa, there are many countries we want to work together in stabilization and security sector. Um, and for that, Europe is needed. Europe has to speak with one voice, and I do not see NATO in that case. And uh, therefore, we established now the European Defense Union, which establishes um, structures and procedures so that us, the European, we are able um, to act when it's necessary. Just decode that for us, uh, Matt Carthy. Is she saying uh, that if military action is needed in Africa, that it'll be the European army that goes in? Yes, well, she's clearly um, an advocate for the militarisation of the EU. She's one of those people who supports pumping billions of euro into what are essentially subsidies to the EU arms industry. Um, And coming from Germany, you could logically, I suppose, understand why she's got to that point. Yes, I think her appointment or her proposal sends all the wrong signals, especially for those people who value Irish neutrality and who don't want to see European funds being redirected in that way, away from things like the Common Agriculture Policy, Cohesion Fund, and projects that could actually develop 
sustainable jobs across Europe that can develop infrastructure, which is where we believe EU funding should be going. Instead, they want it to be put into a militarisation fund so that the EU would become a global force to match the United States and other big blocs. But I have to say this, the biggest problem with regard to Irish neutrality and the uh, militarisation of the EU from an Irish point of view is actually Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Um, Fianna Gael have appointed and agreed to this appointment um, of, of, uh, um, of the um, you know, advocates at all levels of the European institutions. The problem is that while whatever we might say about Ursula um, von der Leyen, at least she's honest in terms of what her plans are and mm. in terms of where she sees the EU direction. We have a situation in Ireland only a few weeks ago in advance of the European elections where you had Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael candidates saying with a straight face that there are no plans to create a European army, when clearly there are, when clearly they're not calling it an EU army per se, but uh, all of the resources and all of the structures that are in place are pointing in that direction. And that's why I think um, we need to ensure that we have an honest debate here at the national level as to what exactly we mean by Irish neutrality and how we can protect that. Because remember this, Irish neutrality... Mm saves us an awful lot of money because it means mm. we don't have to invest in these type of um, vanity militarisation projects. Okay, I just want to go to another couple of issues. And finally, mm-hmm. it actually mm-hmm. allows us mm-hmm. to play a constructive role in peace building across the world. Okay, just ask you briefly about Christine Lagarde because I also want to uh, try and get some time to talk about Mercosur. But uh, it's not that long ago uh, that we relied on the kindness of strangers and perhaps the IMF was the kindest of the strangers. Christine Lagarde uh, headed up the IMF uh, and she's now to head up the ECB. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Time will tell. I wouldn't call the attitude of the Troika towards Ireland um, kindness at all. Um, They clearly had their own agenda, which unfortunately was gladly pursued by the governments that we had in this state. But you're correct in saying that the IMF was the first of the Troika mechanisms to come to the realisation that the austerity agenda or the level of austerity that was being enforced on countries like Ireland was actually counterproductive. So hopefully she will bring some of that um, message to the ECB. The big uh, fundamental problem, the ECB in many respects is Europe's unelected government. They have huge powers um, on in terms of how governments carry out their day-to-day um, work in relation to budgetary and financial and monetary um, policy. The problem is that they're accountable to nobody. And the ECB is, in theory, accountable to the European Parliament through the Econ Committee. I sit on that Econ Committee. That accountability amounts to three opportunities a year where individual MEPs will have a five-minute interaction. I've been in that position with Mario Draghi. Where, so if I ask a question for one minute, he has four minutes to run down the clock. And after that, there is no opportunity for a follow-on question or for, um, um, or for anything else in terms of real accountability or transparency in relation to okay. what the uh, And it is, so despite the size of the Parliament uh, and uh, the power the Parliament is said to have, uh, a lot of people think that too often you're there to rubber stamp issues. Uh, and is that the case with Mercosur or can the Parliament vote down the trade deal? In theory, the Parliament can vote down the trade deal, but let's remember this. There are, at the moment, 14 MEPs from the entire island of Ireland. Um, Most of us would say we don't want to see the Mercosur trade deal. 
but there'll be over a hundred or almost a hundred German MEPs and Germany really wants this deal because in fact this deal was negotiated at the behest of the German car manufacturing mm. industry. Cars so the, in place, South America, yeah. the place mm. where this is going to be mm. defeated will be at council level, at intergovernmental level. Unfortunately Fianna Fáil and people need to remember this when listening to their fall outrage over the last couple of days, they signed up to a mandate for the European Commission, which they could have blocked at that stage. Fina Gale, despite my repeated calls on them, refused to withdraw the support for the mandate for the, the, those negotiations, which they could have done at any stage, which would have ensured that this deal cla- um, collapsed before it was negotiated. Now that the deal has been negotiated, we're in a much more difficult position. It's my view that there are mechanisms by which we can veto it. Unfortunately, the Irish government is already trying to find excuses as to why it can't. My fear is that what Fine Gael want to do is to be able to say that they voted against this deal, but at the same time that it goes it goes through. Mm. Um, unfortunately, but they, they can't veto it, can they? Well, there's mechanisms by which it's an association trade agreement as opposed to an EU only agreement, which from my understanding, will mean that there may be veto opportunities there, and we're looking into that. But what we were saying to the Irish government has been, look for mechanisms by which you can block it, as opposed to excuses as to why you can't, which appears to be the track. This is, people need to remember this and know this, Michael, this is a massive sellout, not only of Irish farming, but of Irish rural communities. It's a sellout in the first instance by our commissioner, who was sent over there Mm -hmm. to defend Irish and EU agriculture. He has absolutely failed to do so. It's also a sellout by those political parties that allowed these um, these trade deals to come to this point where Mercosur is now on the mm. table as a live prospect. We've already seen the CETA agreement. But it's Canada. only 99,000 tonnes of beef. It's 99,000 tonnes of beef that will come into the EU market at a time where Irish beef farmers are already at their wit's end in terms of the prices that they're 1.25% of... All of, overall, of overall beef. But what we mm. don't know and what we can only suspect and what I suspect is that the, beef, that the beef imports that will be coming from the Mercosur countries and Brazil in particular will be the prime cuts of beef. In other the words, steak. the only profitable mm. element okay. of, a, of, of, of the product. Okay. And that means that it will be Irish farmers who will suffer in the first instance. But those rural towns and villages that are depending on those same farmers are the people who are going to bear the brunt of it. And that is why I think um, all political parties now need to stop playing games and saying, oh, we're worried about this deal and join with us in Sinn Féin in organising and implementing all legal and political mechanisms by which we can ensure that it's blocked. Matt Carthy, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin MEP, Matt Carthy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the government is set to announce its approval for recommendations to increase allowances for members of the Defence Forces in a package which is said to be worth over €10 million. In addition to what is being recommended, the government is to conduct another review of core pay. Senator Jared Crockwell, independent senator and former member of the Defence Forces, joins us now. A very good morning to you, Senator Crockwell and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us uh, this morning. This undoubtedly will be welcome news. Uh, good morning to you, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Uh, look, it's, it's the first step along the road towards recovery, but I fear it's not enough to stop the, the uh, ebbing tide. Um, 10.1 million sounds like an awful lot of money, uh, but if you take 4.3 million of that is to uh, pay the uh, military service allowance, um, which will be somewhere around about between 96 cent 
and one euros twenty per week, which is really not an awful lot of money. Mm. A ten percent increase in allowance, though expected, is it not? Yeah, that's the ten percent. So the ten percent will give them between ninety six cent and one twenty one thirty odd a week. Uh, so there is no uh, real impact on core pay. Uh, where there is an impact, and in fairness, we've got to be fair with these things, there is an impact in um, <coughs> military um, duties allowance. Mm. There is an impact in uh, for pilots. There's a retention scheme coming in that will be worth about 22500 for pilots. Um, but there are 8,500 serving soldiers at the moment. Mm. There are probably at most a couple of hundred pilots. So the serving soldiers aren't going to benefit much from the retention for pilots. But I do accept that it's vitally important that we, uh, I suppose, repair the damage done to the Air Corps. Okay. But we also have a crisis in the Navy, as you're aware, Michael, this weekend. The uh, flag officer, that's the senior officer in the Irish Navy, decided he could no longer man the number of ships that he had, and he ordered two of the ships be tied up, uh, which reduces our fleet availability um, for things like drug interdiction, yeah. for human trafficking, uh, for all of the criminal activity that goes on in uh, the Irish coastal area, which is probably equal to the entire landmass of Europe uh, that we're responsible for. Uh, but we now only have five ships uh, patrolling that area. So, mm. I, look, I mean, the, the increase, there's some, some talk about the increase for overseas service. The increase for overseas service, uh, it's 16,000 now for six months overseas. But mm. a man has to leave or a woman has to leave her family. I meet young women all the time in the Defence Forces who have young families and they have to leave their families mm. and serve overseas for six months. When you think about that as a young mother, that's a tough decision to take. It's a tough decision for a young uh, married man who has just set up mm. home, who's probably struggling to make ends meet to leave his or his family for six months, uh, leaving a wife with a young child. Okay, and so, I suppose when you put it in the context of how some members of uh, the Defence Forces have been sleeping in their cars because they can't afford uh, somewhere to rent or to buy for that matter, others have been relying on welfare top-ups and so on, and that while 10 million is a lot of money or sounds like a lot of money or 10% sounds like a big increase, 100% of nothing is nothing. Uh, so it has to be put into perspective. But this uh, is no more or less than was expected uh, because while some of the allowances uh, that were reduced will be reversed upwards and others will be increased, uh, it, it was always expected that the recommendations from the Commission would be in relation to allowances. And the government has said that in the coming months another review will be completed and that will look at core pay. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I spoke with the head of PD4 yesterday, who's the other ranks representative body, and he made the point that the, the, if you want, the first battle is over, but the, far, the war is far from won. And um, he made that very point that, you know, this is one step along the way and that's all it is, is one step. And it's, it's a step to be welcomed. So let's not knock it totally. Um, you know, there mm. will be improvements from it, it, once this deal is announced from next Saturday, 
soldiers uh, and service personnel who are on duty will receive an increase in their allowance. Naval personnel who go to sea will receive an increased allowance while they're at sea per day. Uh, But there are a lot of things that could be done that don't involve pay, like improving accommodation, like Mm. restoring medical care for uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen and their Mm. families. Um, so there's an awful lot could be done. We could improve accommodation in barracks so people don't have to sleep in their cars. We could provide accommodation for people who are on duties at zero cost to them because, after all, they have to be in the barracks anyway. Why should we charge them for it? Okay. Uh, so from that point of view, Michael, there's an awful lot. And I know okay. your programme and your listeners have been extremely supportive of the Defence Forces, and that is greatly appreciated. Okay, now I read this morning that uh, another announcement... Uh which will introduce some initiatives uh, that are not pay-related is expected from government in uh, the coming days. But we leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us this thank morning, you, Independent Senator Jared Crockwell. Now, Wednesday morning is uh, the day that you'll find your newspapers, your local newspapers, that is, in your news agents. And we have uh, the local papers in studio with us now. Maggie McGuire has come in to tell us what's on the front pages. And we'll begin with planning stories in the the Dundalk Democrat. Yeah, this um, front page story features Fianna Fáil councillor Emma Coffey um, expressing her concerns that the current legislation, which she's saying helps fast track um, large developments, is adding pressure to already overstretched infrastructure across the country and could possibly re- lead to a return of the Celtic Tiger um, mindset and she's saying there's a real disconnect between what's happening on the ground and what's happening because of the streamed planning permission and we're heading towards huge problems if it's not addressed. Okay, uh, Mead TD then features on uh, the inside of uh, the Dundalk Democrat. Yeah, apparently there isn't such a rivalry between Louth and Mead anymore but Damien English was in Dundalk this week um, to officially launch the summary report of a major health check on the strengths and future opportunities for Dundalk's town centre and basically this health check process measured the perception of the town from various different Angles. And according to the key um, findings of the report, both consumers and business people in the town feel that Dundalk would benefit from improved residential accommodation and uh, further investment into the town's cultural and natural heritage. OK, great news makes uh, the front page story of the Argus for the Griffin family. Absolutely. There's a gorgeous picture on the front page of the paper um, this week of Sophia Griffin and her mum Katrina um, celebrating a, a double dose of good news for the family. They've been given a date, you know, as listeners to the station mm. will know Sophia's um suffers from cerebral palsy and there has been a fund funding campaign to try and get money together for surgery for her that she needs in the US and we're happy to report that it's reached its 100,000 euro target and she's also been given a date for the surgery in the US it's going to happen in September and Katrina is telling the paper that the family are just over the new um, over the moon with the news and she's paying huge tributes to everyone who contributed and supported them okay minister english also uh, is featured in the paper and indeed some issues relating to his portfolio in housing. Absolutely, yeah. There's also um, staying with housing, there's good news for those checking out the housing market in the Louth area because they report um, a lot on the latest staff figures which shows that Louth is the only um, county in the country to have shown a decline in house prices. House prices. Um, there's been a further drop of 1% since last year, so the average house price in Louth is 215000 bringing it 38% below peak levels. Okay, the good news for the Griffin family makes for the front page of Dundalk Leader as well? Absolutely, readers will be uh, greeted with a lovely picture of Sophia's smiling face uh, as again she celebrates her good news. There's also a lot of coverage in the paper this week of a major cross-border project um, which is aimed to improve water quality in 
in Carlingford Lock and Lock Foyle as well. It's um, going to be done through enhanced water waste um, or wastewater treatment. It's called the Swell Project. It's been granted 35 million in EU funding. It'll last for four years and it'll be left as a legacy model to help um, water companies on both sides of, of the border achieve better quality water in the in the future. Okay, and uh, the tragic death of a 14-year-old Jill Amante then makes as you'd expect, the front Absolutely. page of uh, the Drawed Independent. Yeah, I mean, the paper, mm. the front page mm. and a lot of the pages inside the paper are dominated by the coverage of, of, tra- of Jill's tragic death. Um, the pages of the paper feature many tributes to her from classmates, friends, you know, um, anyone mm. in the community who knew her and they're all describing her as a much-loved girl who had such a bright future ahead of her. OK, well, we're weeks away from uh, the next FLA in Drogheda. Absolutely, and the DI is happily reporting that the um, 2019 FLA Heron is set to be the biggest production in the history of the festival so far, with reports saying that attendance figures will be up on last year's record crowds, so the town may batten down the hatches because there's going to be an influx mm. of people. Okay. And uh, just uh, um, to finish up with the DI, there's a word of warning to people in Drogheda today um, that the army are going to be invading the town today, but it's all for good cause, so don't worry. Um, up to 50 members of the Defence Forces will be taking on a full 20kg pack run today from Drogheda to Gormanstown Army Camp, and it's all been done to raise money and funds for the Temple Street Hospital. Uh, the 56th recruit um, platoon will carry out the 13 kilometre charity run as a way of giving thanks for the great care given to the hospital by one of their own, their little hero, um, Caitlin Neary. Her dad's in the Defence Forces. And when Caitlin was diagnosed with a life-threatening stomach issue, she was treated at Temple Street and they say she survived because of, of the good care that she got. So this is their way of paying back. So the soldiers are going to be gathering on West Street at 2pm today and doing a bucket collection. So if you see uh, see them, maybe give what you can. Well done to them, and I'm sure they'll get great support. Uh, we go to Mead now. The Mead Chronicle uh, has council business uh, dominating uh, its front page and indeed some of the pages inside. Absolutely. Mm. It's a story we covered ourselves yesterday with some of the councillors, as you can imagine. There's a lot of coverage of the controversy over the filling of the last seat of Mead County Council. And um, The front page of the story and some of the inside pages are given over to Lisa Meller, where she's talking about how she feels um, totally and utterly betrayed by her former party colleagues and the paper is describing how the council chairman Wayne Harding had to channel his inner House of Commons speaker John Burko to keep the heated debates under control. Why is that? Is it because the House of Commons sometimes sounds like a pantomime? Yeah, uh, don't I, answer that. <laughs> or a herd of cattle, one or the other. Yeah, okay. um, and there's, yeah. But there's good news um, for a change for shoppers in Navin as Mead County Council are announcing they're going to be introducing half-price parking in the town for the next oh, eight weeks. Okay, great. Yeah, it's in a bid to ease the disruption for motorists and businesses because Real West Street is going to be closed now to facilitate becoming a two-way system. It's all part of the um, Navin 2030 scheme okay. um, for the town. And I'll finish up the review with a plea from the Tara Green Preservation Group. They're calling on visitors to the wishing trees in the hill of Tara to stop suffocating the fairy trees with plastic relics um, after one of the trees fell recently. There's six trees on the hill mm. and basically visitors to the site stand between the trees and um, put out a wish or request something new in their lives and you leave like a little token just yep. kind of to facilitate your wish. But the trees can't cope with the weight of what's been left in them at the minute and the group are saying that action needs to be taken before another of the trees is damaged or killed off completely. Okay, all right. Uh, keep that in mind if uh, you're in that neck of the woods, pardon the pun. <laughs> uh, but we leave there for the moment and uh, thanks uh, for that, Maggie. Maggie will be back uh, with some of uh, the comments. If you'd like to comment on those stories or something else, give us a call. 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, if you go to have your skin checked, you'll most likely be asked if you've lived abroad or if you work outdoors or if you have worked outdoors. And this is probably because one in four of skin cancer deaths in this country are from the construction, outdoor and farming industry, according to the Irish Cancer Society, meaning that there is more than one skin cancer death a week from people who work outdoors. Let's talk about this with Donald Buggy, Head of Services with the Irish Cancer Society. And a very good morning to you, Donald, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Are there different types of skin cancer? Yeah, there are There are a number of different types of skin cancer, and, and I guess the one that we are focused on this morning is melanoma skin cancer, which is the, I suppose, the, the most dangerous, the most difficult to treat. There are, you know, over 12,000 people in Ireland this year will get a form of skin cancer, which is called a non-melanoma skin mm. cancer. And that's something which is, is much easier to treat. It, it's, it's something which uh, a lot of us will get in our lifetime, but we won't go through the, the rigours that, that most people going through cancer treatment will have to go through. But unfortunately, about 1,100 people every year get this melanoma, which is really difficult to treat. And, uh, and difficult to see, I take it, uh, in that uh, you probably will become aware that there's something that's not quite right because of a small bump or lump on your skin. Yeah, so uh, melanomas mainly develop from a, a, a new mole or from a change to an existing mole that you might have. So you're looking for really for for changes in shape, changes in size, changes in colour of an existing mole. So your existing moles is the, normally the size like of a top of a pencil. If you see something like that getting bigger or getting raggedy around the edges mm. or changing in colour, it's quite important to go to your GP and have that checked out. But also then looking for newly inflamed skin or, or bleeding or oozing or, or itching of a, a, a painful spot and that's something, again, that you should be going to your uh, your GP and having that conversation, having it checked out. And for most people, it will be, you know, just a, 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 a simple issue of uh, a non-melanoma skin cancer, which can be relatively easily treated. But for some people, it will be a melanoma. And um, that's, uh, the earlier you get that cancer, and indeed pretty much all cancers, the better. Or, or not necessarily a cancer, but worth checking out anyway. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if you go to the GP and ask them uh, to look at, at what's on top of the skin, is it what's under the skin that the GP will be more concerned about? Yes, so the, 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 the GP, the, the melanoma, will, if it is a melanoma, will have, I suppose, it will be gone deeper through the skin, through the dermis, and that's where the, the, the problems are caused. So that's that's where the, the GP will be looking really, I, I guess, to, to rule out um, any any concerns or any issues that, that uh, he or she mm. might feel that you might have or then you're referred to a consultant who then is trying to rule in and, and trying to determine whether it is or not an issue which needs uh, additional treatment. Correct so, me if I'm wrong, but that's a, another way of saying uh, the smallest of, of lumps, uh, what looks like to be the smallest of problems, if it is a problem at all, could end up being something quite significant under the skin. It can be, yes, it can indeed. Which is why we should all be watching out for these things and going and getting and them being checked. Being vigilant, yeah, yes, and indeed. being vigilant. Uh, and uh, obviously prevention better than cure. This is uh, the message that you're trying to get to people today. 
It is indeed, and, and you know, the, the skin cancer is, is one of those cancers which the vast majority of them can be prevented by practicing sun smart practices. And we're raising the issue that although only about one in ten workers work outdoors, unfortunately, if you do work outdoors, you have a significantly increased risk. So one in four deaths from skin cancer are from those in. The, the construction, outdoor and, and, and farming industry. And we're talking uh, through our partnership with the Irish Congress of Tra- Trade Unions with employers. Mm. So employers need to have a plan in place and put protection measures in place for employees. And part of that is education and making employees aware of the danger, but also it's about putting in place protective measures, making sure employees have uh, the, the, the uh, proper you know, long sleeves, breathable, hats to cover head and neck, etc. And thankfully, we're not seeing, you know, you don't see employees to the same extent as, as perhaps we've seen in the yeah. past with, uh, you know, tops off on nights, sunny days like yeah. today because of the message. Bur- burned to a crisp. I mean, many of us will remember yeah. it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And yeah. to wear so sunscreen. Those practices are changing, thankfully. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, it's really it's really a partnership approach between ourselves, between the Congress Trade Union, between employers and employees get this message out there. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Donald Buggy, Head of Services with the Irish Cancer Society. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Hi again. Um, I'll kick off with uh, some of the comments that I have left over from yesterday. Um, a lot of them are related to our opening debate with the uh, Mead Councillors on the filling of the vacant seat. T- uh, Tony was in contact with us to say that the chaos over filling the last seat in Mead um, is an absolute joke. The finger pointing and name calling was juvenile, to put it mildly. The position is filled now and while some councillors may not be over the moon about it, they need to get over it and get on with the job in hand and start working for the people who elected them. OK, we'll actually be hearing more about that a little bit later on in the programme this morning. Absolutely, yeah. And um, Betty in Malahide was in contact with us to say that, um, you know, Sharon Keoghan has uh, obviously gone to the same school of media training as some of our government ministers um, where Betty felt that she was only hearing what she wanted to hear in the interview yesterday regardless of what public opinion is. Oh, I don't know. What, <laughs> what, what, what exactly does she mean by that? I don't know. I don't know either. And on the same mm-hmm. subject, uh, Tom was in contact. Um, he kind of took exception to the fact that Sharon Keoghan was so uh, vehement in her claims that uh, the people of the area didn't have any issues with how the whole um, seat filling position or the whole seat filling issue mm-hmm. was handled. And uh, he's just saying that if um, Amanda Smith is as well liked as Sharon is, is claiming, and uh, then why are people protesting so much about her appointment? Okay. Okay, well, I suppose uh, there was uh, some objection to it, uh, but the majority of uh, councillors uh, voted uh, in favour of uh, Amanda Smith and uh, she has taken the seat uh, and I suppose those councillors represent the people and then you'd have to say that uh, there is certainly not outright objection to what happened, uh, possibly the opposite to that. Uh, but as I say, we'll hear more about that uh, a little bit later on. But let's uh, turn our attention to uh, the ICTU biannual delegate conference. Building a Better Future for All is... Uh, 
uh, the theme of uh, the conference and uh, delegates will gather for the second day today in Dublin. They're about to be addressed by the Taoiseach and they'll hear from former President Mary Robinson a little bit later on. Own Radio Assistant General Secretary with ICTU is on the line. Good morning to you, Owen, and thanks for joining us. Uh, what are you hoping to hear from the Taoiseach today? Good morning, Michael. How are you doing? Um, well, we're going to hear, I presume, the Taoiseach outline his vision as to what needs to happen in, in the country over the next few years. But I think crucially and importantly, we're going to hear the General Secretary, Patricia King, respond and, I suppose, outline what we believe needs to happen on, on a range of key issues, uh, not just Brexit, but on housing and a range of key fundamental issues facing the state. Obviously, we are an all-island Congress, so, uh, you know, we cover both jurisdictions, but unfortunately, with no Northern Ireland government, we don't have any uh, leadership of, of a Northern Ireland Assembly with us, which is which is regrettable, but understandable in the circumstances. Okay, and I, I think a lot of people would have heard you on uh, the television yesterday uh, speaking about uh, how uh, power sharing has uh, been elusive for the last couple of years, and how that, uh, to some degree, uh, resulted in the murder of Lyra McKee? Well, I, I suppose the point I was trying to make is that in the last 898 days now since we had power sharing, a lot of negative things have happened. Um, I'm not suggesting that, you know, if we had power sharing, you know, those things wouldn't have happened. But uh, I think if we're going to have a stable, shared democracy, which is what Northern Ireland needs, devolution and genuine power sharing is essential for that. But it seems the political class in Northern Ireland is incapable of, of getting its act together at this moment in time. And I think instead of the political parties constantly looking to the British government, the Irish government, you know, the solution is within. They need to look at themselves and they need to come forward and compromise and they need to realise that compromise and movement is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing, particularly in a divided society uh, like Northern Ireland. So yeah. there are many challenges that, that, that Northern Ireland and the island has to deal with, Brexit in particular being one. And it's not helped when there is no coherent political voice in Northern Ireland, articulating the concerns and the interests of the people there. So, mm. yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think it, it might be feeding into a, a sense of uh, sectarianism in that I've heard people from Northern Ireland say, if our leaders can't come together and work together, let alone find solutions together, why should we come together as communities uh, from uh, each side of uh, the divide? Well, the leaders need to be bold, uh, and actually, it's interesting. Right across civil society, people are coming together. I mean, ourselves in the trade union movement have worked with the farming community, with many in the business community, the community and voluntary sector on the issue of Brexit. Now, if, if the trade union movement and employers and farmers and community and voluntary sector can come together when we have different interests in many areas on an issue of Brexit, surely the five main political parties can come together. So, you know, compromise is not a bad thing. Uh, yes, it's important to have your principles, uh, but it shouldn't be about a win-you-lose. It has to be win-win. And I actually think one of the problems we have in Northern Ireland is that there is no social dialogue. There's no mm. space for representative bodies that represent large swathes of the community, both communities, um, to have a place uh, in the political discourse and the political narrative. And it's very much, you know, the, the parties don't want to share power with each other, but it, it seems they don't want to share power with civil society. And I think mm. You know, a civil society that feels uh, abandoned by the leadership, to some degree, uh, at least as a result of that. Some, I suppose, would say that the unionists in uh, the shape of the DUP have been running Northern Ireland from Westminster. Uh, there were a, a number of unionists in Northern Ireland. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yes, uh, namely uh, the two contenders uh, for the next leadership, next leadership of uh, the Conservative Party. Yes, so we're and them. Um I mean, it's frustrating, but we have to we have to listen to this charade for the next two and a half weeks up to the 22nd of July of the two contenders, uh, you know, boasting and, and, and suggesting that they will make uh, a perfect deal out of Brexit and they and only they will negotiate the new agreement with uh, with Michelle Barney. And he, I mean, the, the reality is once the campaign is over and once the victor emerges, he will soon realise that the earth is not flat uh, and that, you know, the UK cannot have its cake and eat it. Uh, and that if they want an agreement, it's the withdrawal agreement. Um, and we in the ITU fully support the withdrawal agreement. We think mm. it's fair. We think it's a compromise. Uh, and we think the backstop is an essential essential part of that. So I think whether it's Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt, they're going to realize very quickly after the 22nd of July um, that things aren't as they may want them to be. And they're going to have to come down. And, OK, well, Boris and, Johnson and, might and, say, will you give up that moral blackmail uh, uh, and... Oh. Uh, see reason, uh, and if you don't see reason, well, then perhaps uh, he will take them out without a deal. But, but, but Boris Johnson needs to remember that he was the foreign secretary in a government that looked for a UK wide backstop. The EU uh, were prepared to do a Northern Ireland only backstop. It was the UK government that looked for a UK wide one, and in fact, we thought that made complete sense. We thought that the EU could have there because it's in the interest of workers across the island of Ireland and indeed Britain to have a UK wide backstop and as close as possible a relationship. And Boris Johnson was the foreign secretary of that cabinet that looked for that. I think mm. he said at the time he didn't know what it meant. So that suggests a, a big question mark when it comes to competence. They are both saying they will... Does it matter? I mean, well, do, do, well, do, does it matter if he's the next prime minister? Well, I think everything matters. But what, what, what mm. ultimately matters is there isn't a majority in the parliament in the House of Commons for a no-deal Brexit. Mm. That's what's clear. And I think either leader will find it very difficult extract 
their state from the EU on the 31st of October. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mean, I, I, suppose, well, I suppose my question, Owen, is does it matter if we think he's being incompetent? What matters is that somebody who is incompetent is the Prime Minister, if that is how it turns out, and what they might do. And if he decides to take the United Kingdom out of the European Union without a, a deal, what then? Well, I think what then is there are, are grave consequences uh, for, for everybody on these islands. Um, and I think, you know, for the first few weeks, I imagine the status quo on the border will remain as is. But but after that, I mean, the Irish government will be required to protect the single market. Um, it's our single market as well as the EU's. Um, I, I, you won't be able to have, you know, free from trade unless you have a withdrawal agreement because there's no transition period. Mm. Um, so if it's a crash out, uh, it's a potential disaster for everybody. But... Um, you know, there's a long way to go between uh, October the 31st. Indeed. Once the selection is over. And no doubt that Taoiseach will be talking about what's happened over the last three days and the support he expects for Ireland uh, from Europe following uh, the negotiations in Brussels uh, this week. Uh, You'll also be hearing from former President uh, Mary Robinson and uh, I take it climate change will be the theme there. Yes, we heard from her. She spoke this morning. Oh, I beg your pardon. Mm -hmm. speech Mm -hmm. at at half nine. Uh, and she's just actually left the, the conference now on climate change, and it was a it was an excellent address. Um, and yes, I think the Taoiseach will talk about the solidarity that uh, Europe has given Ireland, and it, it's quite clear we met Michelle Barnier ourselves a number of weeks ago, and they're very firm. The withdrawal agreement is the exit agreement. Uh, if the EU, if the UK crashes out and they want a future relationship, they're going to have to deal with the issues of the backstop. Uh, citizens' rights and the divorce settlement. Mm. The EU are speaking with one voice and are very clear on that. And I think. I think that's to be welcomed. So, you know, there's a bit to go yet. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can avoid a no-deal Brexit. Hopefully common sense in the Tory party will eventually prevail. Who knows? It's a big ask. Um, mm. But we hope so. But Michael, what the British government would have done at the start of this, they were serious about any negotiation. They should have formed an all-part committee. But this was too serious. Leave some state of the Westminster, 5248. It's a country divided. And what they had to do was to bring people together and look at this in the round instead of, you know, red lines and all this kind of nonsense that Theresa May has been engaged in in the last two years. I'll tell you this, uh, they're a poor set of negotiators. There are people in this conference hall that have negotiated restructuring pay deals and they'd certainly do a better job than in the Tory party, that's for sure. Okay, but <laughs> you have to work with who's there. Uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> therein lies the biggest concern, perhaps. Uh, I have to leave it there, Owen. Thank you indeed uh, for joining oh, us this morning. On really Assistant General Secretary with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Now, let's uh, briefly go back to some more of uh, the calls and comments that you have there, Maggie. Um, Anne was in contact with us in relation to your interview with Donald Buggie. Um, she was deli- d- delighted to hear us talking about um, the issue on the programme this morning. She said the statistic of one death a week in the farming and building sector frightened her beyond mm. belief. Um, people need to wise up and put on sun cream as a matter of habit. Yes, it's great to have lovely sunny weather, but people need to take care of themselves and look after their skin. And I'll finish up with this one because okay. I know we're short in time. But um, Margaret is saying that uh, the Defence Forces deserve every penny of this new pay deal. To think that some of the people who protect the nation's safety were having to sleep in their cars because they couldn't afford rent. Beggar's belief. Okay. All right. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Maggie. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll find uh, some more time for comments. Uh, you're taking calls now, as is Nicole uh, who's with yep. us today. And her telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, the Joint Committee on Communications, Climate Action and Environment will meet again uh, this evening uh, to discuss uh, the rollout of uh, the National Broadband Plan. Eamon Ryan is uh, the leader of uh, the Green Party and uh, a member of uh, that committee and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Eamon Ryan. Thanks for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. I understand you uh, met last week uh, and decided to invite uh, David McCourt, who's uh, the Chief Executive of uh, Granahan McCourt, uh, in front of uh, your committee uh, but I read in the Irish Times this morning that he's declined that invitation, saying it would be inappropriate. Yeah, we've invited everyone else, and, uh, and we thought it was um, appropriate for us to hear from Mr McCourt, uh, because he's obviously a central key player. He's the last preferred bidder to roll out rural broadband, national broadband plan. Uh, now, he's refused that, which is his right, but... Um, uh, I think it's a pity because I think we need to get the full picture. Um, we will have the department officials in later on this afternoon, and to a certain extent, they'll be making the case for the national broadband plan as is devised. I suppose it'll be similar to the case Mr. McCourt would have made. So we're, we're not completely flighting, uh, you know, kind of without evidence. Um, I'll be honest; it's been a very interesting process. Um, it's interesting in the sense that none of us want to delay the rollout of rural broadband. I think everyone in the committee has a similar view. But this is a critical piece of infrastructure for rural Ireland. We have to have a country where you do have equal access to the internet no matter where you live as, so that we get balanced regional development. Um, but there are real concerns. And, and I think uh, the concerns, my concerns were, were centred originally very much on the fact that the state will be contributing almost three and a quarter billion. The developer, Mr. McCourt, and his colleagues will be contributing about 175 million upfront cash but that they will end up owning the assets at the end. And, and I still can't get my head around that in terms of why is it that the people who put in 3.25 billion mm. don't end up owning it. But more recently, and, and more interestingly in a way, yeah. um, Air, Air came in last week, uh, who were one of the bidders. They pulled out uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, but I, I, some of the images have been used, which I think is a good one. They kind of took the pin out of the Canadian and rolled it into the committee by saying, this is going to cost the state currently about $3 billion. We could do it for less than one. So there would be a potential €2 billion Euro saving. And I'll be honest, that mm. can't be ignored either now, particularly with, with uncertain economic times ahead of us. And, and also, if you could think, what could we use that $2 billion for? Can you imagine if we use that $2 billion to roll out a rural bus service across rural Ireland. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it, You could build a few houses with it. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of money at stake and it could even prove to be more, could prove to be less uh, because uh, they're talking about uh, a subvention of between half a billion and one and a half billion, somewhere between that. Yeah, and, and I'm picking the halfway mark there mm. around about a billion. Mm. But it's still a third of what the projected cost is, what the almost certain cost would be if we go ahead with the National Broadband Plan as is. And I think it's our job as, as public representatives uh, has been asked to scrutinise this whole project by the Taoiseach, by the Dáil, to make our assessment. We won't do that until we've heard all the evidence that will probably conclude this afternoon, as I said, with the department. Um, and we'll have to come to some sort of collective view. Okay. That won't be easy, but, but that's, uh, that's what we have to do. All right. Uh, and uh, Carolyn Lennon, the chief executive of AIR, was in front of your committee a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, uh, there's been a lot of talk about what they've suggested they could do this for since then. And as to whether it's possible or not, let alone viable or not, is another day's work. 
but were you surprised at what she said because she wrote an op-ed in the Irish Times in which she said that nobody should have been surprised by how Air is suggesting now that it could be done far cheaper? Well, uh, no, I think we were surprised because, to be honest, their original bid uh, had been a multiple of what they're saying they can do it for it now. The reason they say, and sorry to get into the technicalities of this, but you need to understand this to understand where the different views. The reason she says is they could do it for a third of the price. Well, firstly, um, the national broadband plan is designed so that householders would pay a hundred euros connection charge. That would be the maximum. Um, what she makes the case is that in other parts of the country, mm. they, they've rolled out rural broadband to about uh, 340,000 houses now. Uh, the charge is close to €170. Mm. So that's one of the differences, is the householders will pay slightly more. But they'd be paying the same that other households around the country are paying. Um, secondly, they're saying the standards are slightly lower in terms of the response rates to a fault. So rather than um, 95, I think it is, percent of all faults being fixed within a day, they say in the rest of the country it's slightly lower, it's about 85%. And that the cost of getting to a 95% repair standard, they say, is quite significant. Mm. Unless First, you wanted a better service and that they'd be able to make that available to you at a that, higher cost. And, yeah, and that is the judgment call in terms mm. of for, for, for government at what levels of service you set. But thirdly, and this is probably the most significant mm. issue, the government agreed, and, uh, and they kind of had to under European law, that AIR would roll out broadband to those 340,000 rural houses. By doing that, those houses tend to be in donuts around every town around the country. They're the easiest houses to get to. Mm. And AIR, um, the, the National Broadband Plan, will provide a separate cable to the AIR one that's, that's running to those houses. So there'll be a kind of, in, in large parts of the country, coming out of the towns, you'll have two networks. You'll have the air network going to those houses along the road, and then you'll have the new National Broadband Plan network, which will kind of jumping over that, that kind of donut, as it were, to get out into the very rural houses. Now, what AIR is saying is they can do cheaper because they wouldn't have to duplicate that, that infrastructure. You wouldn't have to have mm. two fibre after cables running down a road. So there is some logic to what they're saying. Um, there's some downsides to it, but, but is it worth $2 billion? Uh, I think I, I find it very hard to justify that, particularly when at the end of the day the state who puts in all the money mm. doesn't even own the new asset. And I still go back back to that as one of the questions I'm asking: How can we pay three and a half, three and a quarter billion? and the person who pays 175 million ends up owning the assets. Well, there is some logic. In fact, there's a, a lot of logic, so much logic to it as it's being presented, at least, that it's very hard to argue with it because what they're saying is that they will offer the exact same level of service, reliable, reliability and prices uh, as is available to people who already have rural fibre broadband, not something better. Uh, and to quote Carolyn Lennon directly, she says, we fully believe everyone in rural Ireland should have ac- access to high-speed broadband. We don't believe it needs to be better than that available in our town cities and the rest of rural Ireland when that leads to substantial and excessive costs to the state, as we've been discussing, that excessive cost is €2 billion or perhaps €2.5 billion. Euro. It's hard to argue against that, is it? It really is. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, I think, uh, I think that's the difference. I think the main reason why it probably, the, why it isn't being pulled back is because this has been seven years in planning. And there's a thing called inertia. You know, when, you, when, you, when you've been mm. working on something for seven years 
at the last minute you want to say, oh, do you know what? There's actually a better way of doing it. That's a hard thing to do. It would also be a hard thing for government to eat a bit of humble pie to say, you know what? We have actually got a cheaper option. Uh, Caroline, or sorry, the former chief executive of AIR, wrote to the minister a year and a half ago saying that this cheaper option existed, but the government never wrote back, never contacted them again. I think it's a hard political thing for the government to acknowledge that perhaps they should have done that, that they should have looked at all the cheaper options. I think the main thing holding us back from doing that is political embarrassment more than anything else. There is a question mark over 81,000 homes, though, isn't there, uh, where no connection exists and how much it might cost to connect them? Uh, I think Eris says it will be more, but maybe not as much as people uh, expect. And uh, that leaves a, a bit of a grey area for people to look at this on. Yeah, there are always in this, there's always the really difficult ones, the houses that are five miles down the road in the middle of nowhere and and how you how you get to them. One of the things that I think AIR have been saying is that they believe you should always just um, hang the wires on, the fibre optic cable now, mm. on the telegraph poles and uh, telephone poles and, uh, and go in that way. The plan does allow for certain circumstances where people would run ducting into houses and to a certain extent the state is covering the cost of that. That's also the other big kind of question mark around cost. So there are still, they're, they're always going to be in this last mile, last houses, difficult options, difficult choices. Mm. Even if it's uh, using fibre in the vast majority of cases, there's still going to be one or two percent where we would probably use fixed wireless. So you wouldn't put a fibre cable in because it's such a difficult house to access. You'd probably just put a, a point-to-point fixed yeah. wireless connection. Because so the, the, the government is saying that if you're not connecting directly to the houses, well, we're not interested. We're not listening. Uh, we've no interest in what you have to say because that is what we've promised to people. Uh, but on uh, the other hand, uh, then we have this plan which could cost substantially less and we may not be able to uh, avail of it even if we are listening, even if we want to do it because it could be a breach of European competition rules. I don't believe that. I, I think Gary made the case and I've informed Minister of Communications I've been dealing with the Commission on this uh, I think you could set it as a universal service obligation where, and I think that's done in other countries, that's a fairly standard regulatory mechanism. So I don't buy the argument that Europe will stop us doing it. I think it's domestic politics. I think it's, as I said, complicated because we're all conscious that we want every house mm. to have access to the internet. We're conscious that it has been delayed seven years now and further delay is not what anyone would want. But at the same time, we're also conscious of the right to the public attention for our responsibility to manage the public finances and where you do a potential saving of two billion even if there's some uncertainty and there's some dented pride in in making that shift i think two billion deserves to be used in other services for rural ireland and we should take that hit politically or the government should take that politically admit that there are there does not seem to be a cheaper option and go for it i'm going to wait and hear what the department say this afternoon before making a final call on that because you want to hear all the evidence, but mm-hmm. everything I've heard today makes me think this isn't the best deal for the state and therefore should be thought about again. Is there a risk that you'd end up spending the savings on compensating the preferred bidder? If Mr McCord had accepted your invitation in front of uh, the committee today, would you have asked him, would, will you sue us if we go with the cheaper option? Well, I don't think so, because there isn't any contract signed. It is just a preferred bidder status. It isn't... Uh, 
And that's one of the reasons we've been looking at it as a committee before you get. I mean, if, if you, once you sign contracts, you're locked in. We're not far away from that now. It's probably a matter of a couple of months. Uh, but but there is that's the time that you're still at the chance to say, hold on a sec here now. Let's have a last look and see if this is the best option. And if you think it isn't, that doesn't leave an entitlement for the for the uh, preferred bidder who isn't pursued. You know, you they may they may well have certain costs that they would have incurred in in, in uh, devising the bid, but certainly they wouldn't be due two or three billion euros in compensation for lost profits because. Uh, nothing's agreed yet. Okay, well, your committee meets uh, this evening. I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest uh, in uh, the proceedings, and we thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Eamon Ryan is uh, the leader of uh, the Green Party and a member of the Rockers Committee on Communications. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Rent pressure zones uh, where rent can only be increased uh, by up to 4% a year are back in uh, the news. They've been in the news since 2016, but uh, they're being talked about it this week because there's more of them, 19 more of them. In fact, indeed, all of County Louth and all of County Meath are now deemed to be rent pressure zones. So we're joined by Margaret McCormick, who's a spokesperson for the Irish Property Owners Association. Good morning to you, Margaret, and uh, thanks for joining us joining us. Uh, you're suggesting uh, that uh, this is a tool that the government is using but it's a, a blunt tool that disadvantage uh, works as a disadvantage to some landlords uh, who are trying to keep rents low. Uh, is it a, a little bit like using a, a sledgehammer to crack a, a nut as far as some of your members are concerned? Absolutely. Uh, we now have 65% of, of all tenancies in rent pressure zones. We have whole counties uh, you know, of all Cork, um, I think is 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 loud. All of loud. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we have huge. Meat. Yeah, we have counties in them. Now, there's areas um, with, which would in in within it which would have high rent, and there's areas within that which have very low rent. We we will f- struggle to get investment now. Our investors to invest in in rural areas where the rent is is substantially lower, very, very low, and also uh, they are capped at, at the 4%. So it's not something that's going to work for the market uh, in its, uh, mm. at all, really. I mean, it, it's a blunt instrument. It, it, it takes absolutely no account of the level of, of the rent that's charged. So, um, it, it's a 4% for everybody. So it's fine for anybody that's charging market rent. They, they'd be in a position that, 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 that uh, they would, would be in a position to uh, pay back their borrowings and uh, their costs, um, but anybody that has kept their rent low, the very people they want to keep in the market that have kept their rent low are being substantially disadvantaged for being for rewarding their good tenants because it, it, somebody we had a meeting yesterday evening and one of the members there uh, that attended it was an information briefing that the RTB gave to to IPOA members, but one of our members there, I mean, they said, they said that because they when they get a good tenant they keep the rent low. They want to keep a good tenant. That person hasn't got the same uh, debt ratio as, as other people mm. um, uh, in that case. But, but there'd be very few landlords in that position, would there? Well, it, it, there's a lot of landlords out there that are highly indebted. It's, it's very hard to... The information is not that out there, really, to see mm. how many have got loans and how many have have paid off loans or are, are in the process of paying off loans. But it takes 25 years for, you know, of, after you buy a property in general, mm. to pay a loan off. 
But what you're saying is uh, that if the rent is low, uh, they don't want to increase uh, the rent because they're happy with the tenant. Uh, So what difference does it make if they don't want to increase They they may not on on that situation, but if they sell the property, another investor won't purchase it because uh, it, it, it won't, it'll be substantially devalued because the there would be no yield on the property uh, in that case. Um, but th- that, in, in a case like that, mm. that landlord is fine. But if, where we have, say, a landlord that is, that is, is highly indebted, mm. um, but we've had two years, this, 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 the rent pressure zones, and, and before the rent pressure zones came in, you couldn't vary rent for 24 months. Um, there was lots of situations where people wouldn't have been in a position mm. to vary rents, even where they are indebted uh, and they have. Uh, well, well, what, if the, well, what if the tenant leaves, uh, or, or uh, if, if, if the they tenant, move out, or if they die, or something like that, uh, and you've, you've a new tenant, uh, can it, you charge them higher? You no, know, you are still restricted to the rent pressure zone. Okay, uh, and do you face a fine of up to fifteen thousand euro if you try to? Yes, sanctions have been introduced and they, they're up to 15,000 as a sanction, but also the, the, there could be a cost of up to 15,000 if you, uh, for, for take, for the RTB to take the case against you. So they could face 30,000 or they could face a criminal conviction. Mm. So it's, it's fairly, and, and that's if you get something wrong as well. And if, I, I don't know if you've, if you've seen the calculation that you have to do for rent pressure zones and, and also the, I mean, the notices themselves are so prescriptive. And if you get anything wrong in it, uh, you've breached legislation. So we have to be, uh, we need legislation that is much more simple. To in terms of calculating what you're charging, is it? Oh, yes. Mm. It, it, it's, a, it's a formula. Mm. It, it's, a, it's, an, it's like algebra. You know, open brackets, close brackets, divide by, multiply by, add this, uh, and multiply by your rent. It is a very uh, difficult situation for anybody to to actually get their head around and to, to work out and get right and as well as that around with the rent pressure zones when it comes even the baseline on the formula can be different at different times depending on when the tenancy started so it is, it's extremely complicated legislation so it's not as simple as saying that you can increase the rent by four percent a year uh, no it's not it's not as simple as that at all um, it's, and it's, it's hugely problematic. And when you take it that, that um, most landlords have, have one property, mm. this is not something that is easy to do or easy to manage. And what we need to be doing here is we need to be protecting our existing supply of, of accommodation. So we, we need to be making... We but had, the cost we, of renting the existing supply has increased by more than 8% in the course of the last year, hasn't it? The, the, in the last year uh, with the RTB figures. But again, you've got to take um, into account that the legislation itself uh, changed, and the RTB can't tell you what. The, the, when you when you talk to the RTB in general, you're talking about the current registered tenancies mm. and the tenancies that have been registered in the last quarter. So they were they were talking about quarter one now, uh, compared to quarter two. But remember, tenancy can be uh, either for four years or for six years under the legislation, and the requirement to register was so. So in the cases of the ones that they're looking at at this quarter now. They wouldn't have been registered till three years ago, or they, they're four years before that they would have been registered. So in that case, they wouldn't necessarily know if the rent moved, because landlords didn't update them with the, the details. Now there's a requirement in legislation now that that, that mm. you update when uh, rent changes, but it wasn't something that that was done 
previously. So the RTB themselves haven't got the figures to go back and say, well, it moved it moved that year, it moved that okay, year. Okay, but, we, but, so, but so I mean, the, there's a, a number of things that would indicate that rent has been increasing and increasing substantially. The figures from the RTB, which uh, you say uh, are, are not completely accurate for the reasons you've just outlined. Uh, there's what people I, are I, saying anecdotally, uh, and then there's uh, the likes of daft.ie, which uh, quite often publish uh, surveys. Uh, and we know that rent is unaffordable for uh, an awful lot of people. Uh, and uh, Brendan Hellam was in the doll yesterday saying that these rent pressure zones are actually sending out a signal to landlords that they can increase their rent by up to 4% and that they should be uh, brought to uh, book and told that they can't increase their rent more or less at all, that it, rent should be capped at 1% for three years. Now, I mean, the f- it's very, it's all very well for somebody to come out and say something like that, but they're not looking at the level of the rent when it was capped. So, uh, I mean, at the moment when the rent pressure zones are introduced, they're not looking at the level of that rent. So we don't know. You can have somebody at market rent and you can have somebody at 50% below market rent. You could have somebody at uh, 60% below market rent. Uh, everybody's allowed the 4%. You're not allowed to go beyond market rate. Now, market rate, again, is, is a bit difficult at this stage to figure out because of all the interference of the government. I mean, market rate used to be basically what a tenant not in occupation would be willing to pay and a landlord would be willing to accept. Mm. But, in, but that's gone. It's not gone, but it's extremely difficult now because a, be, with different people at different levels and when they increase... Uh, if they increase by 4% or when, when they went out for new tenancies, the amounts around will vary hugely. Mm. So you will have one property, one side that would be m- maybe are, are earning 50% than the property next door to it. Now, both people could be, uh, both investors um, could be trying to put a pension together for their old age. So one person has been substantially disadvantaged on their investment and the other person isn't. So, I mean, there's nothing that, there's nothing in this that takes account of of the indebtedness or or the the rights of the landlord. And rent control was found to be unconstitutional in Ireland. And when they brought in the, the rent control, um, they said it was for a max of three years for an emergency. Now they've they've gone on and they've put it out for another two years. But they still haven't addressed the fundamental issue for for landlords that have rents substantially below market mm. rent. And for, you know, they've brought in something now that brings... But what is, mar- what, what is market rent? Uh, I mean, you're talking about somebody who's getting 62% of market rent. Maybe the person uh, who's at the higher end of the scale is getting uh, 38% more than what is the actual market rent. Uh, no, no, they you- won't be getting more than the actual market rent because market rent is, uh, is, is basically some, what somebody not in the accommodation would be willing to pay. And that... Um, the landlord would be willing to accept. Is it? Uh, yeah, or, or, it's not. It's not. But it, the the restriction. I mean, the restrictions that they've brought in have have changed it. Well, you, well, you it's very difficult to actually find market rate. Mm. You, you you tend to have to get valuers and things. To, well, you, you'd, you'd assume that the state would be pretty good at, at that sort of thing, and that when it, it, it makes payments uh, to. Uh, welfare recipients uh, uh, for rent uh, that they'd be looking at what the going market rate is uh, and it seems um, as though they're giving far less than the going market rate uh, this uh, survey from the Simon community looked at 482 properties uh, for people who were getting HAP, the housing assistance payment and it fell short on every oh, single one of them. 
Uh, yes, the state doesn't pay market rate. Uh, they, they tend to pay below market rate. And that's one of the problems that for, for somebody that, that wants to apply with, with, this, um, with state approval. They have a difficulty that they can't, they, uh, they can't source the accommodation. But it, the HAP has, has a number of other issues with it as well. They don't pay market rent. They, they, their payments are made in arrears. The market takes rent in advance. Um, getting approval from HAP sometimes, um, or getting the money through from HAP, uh, can can take uh, long periods of time. And meanwhile, there can be no income. Mm. Um, they don't pay a deposit. And with the HAP, if a tenant stops paying the local authority their section of the amount of money they have to pay, everything stops to the landlord. But why is so it so expensive? Uh, I mean, why are, are, are landlords feeling the pinch now when they're getting multiples of what they were getting 10 years ago? It's, it, the taxation is, is the biggest problem with the sector. It's treated as unearned income. That's, that's how the government tax it, as unearned income. So there are some allowable expenses, but not all expenses are allowable. And then you've got, um, you're paying about 55% of, of, of the, the income in taxation. Um, and as, as somebody pointed out to me the other day... Was that not the case 10 years ago? Uh, there's, there's always been a situation around yes, uh, tax. Because it is unearned um, income, isn't it? I mean, you're not doing anything to earn it. Uh, you're getting somebody else to buy a house for you, so it is unearned now, income. you've got to purchase a property. Mm. You've got to uh, maintain that property, insure the property. Mm. You've got to ensure that it's up to housing standards for rented houses mm. regulation. And you get somebody else you to pay to for that. You have to source a tenant. Yeah. You have to th- do due diligence. Mm. Then you have to do your inventory, your mm. lease agreement. Uh, you uh, you've to let it. Then you're responsible for 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 antisocial behaviour or any difficulties around that. You have got to return. Um, obviously, collect the rent. You've got to make returns to mm. revenue. But you had to do all not, of that ten years ago, Margaret. It, but it's still unearned, unearned income. Ten years ago, was, it was it was still classed as. But now you're probably getting what? Same. Now you're getting what? Twenty or thirty percent more in rent than you would have ten years ago. Um, the, the rent is definitely more now. Yeah. Uh, ten years ago, we were going through a situation where the rent had, had substantially reduced um, and there was uh, huge difficulties around mm. that. When, the, when we had an oversupply, rents had substantially reduced. So, y- yes, the, the income is more now. But we've, you've got to take into account as well the fact that, that an investment is an, it, to make an investment of that nature it is, is expensive. And obviously you have to deal with and pay all of the items that are required um, like the, the mortgage mm. um, and the repairs, maintenance, you have to furnish, okay. you have to do, you have to keep the property up to standard. So there's a, there's a cost there and, and 50% of, of the income goes, as, as we said, back to revenue. So, I mean, when you're looking at something like that, um, I think in, in 2016, um, in taxable income from, from rental was around um, 1,556 million. That was taxable. So the government got over 778 million from the sector. So you're you're looking at a a tenant having to pay their rent from after-tax income Mm -hmm. and then half of that going back to the state. Back to the government. All right, Margaret, I have to leave there amount of time, but thank you indeed for your time and for joining us this morning. Margaret McCormick of the Irish Property Owners Association. 
Now, yesterday we spent uh, some time talking about how Amanda Smith took a seat on Meath County Council despite not having stood in uh, the election. She was nominated uh, by Sharon Kyogen, who had actually won two seats in the elections on Meath County Council and uh, she gave us uh, her perspective on all of this. And I think there's a lot of uh, councillors currently in the chamber that have been, uh, that are in the chamber because of co-option. It's the likes of um, Joe Fox, the likes of Eddie Fennessy and the likes of Jerry O'Connor. And they were all co-opted into the council uh, at various stages uh, throughout the last council and the council before that. All right, that's uh, Sharon Kogan speaking to us yesterday. One of uh, the three councillors mentioned there is Fine Gael councillor Gerry O'Connor. A very good morning to you, Gerry O'Connor, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you took issue with what was being said because at one time you were co-opted to the council, but you're saying that Amanda Smith has not been co-opted to the council. Yeah, this is a different process. I mean, what happens in a council uh, when something like this arises during the term of a council through a resignation, a death, or somebody being promoted by becoming a TD, is that we do a co-option process. And it stays either uh, an independent, if it's an independent councillor, it stays an independent seat. If it's a party councillor, it stays a party seat. This is completely different from the, fill- the filling of a casual vacancy where no seat has been taken. Councillor Kilgan was deemed unelected into that seat. And I clarified that at the meeting uh, when it was recorded in the minutes from the previous meeting. So it wasn't an independent seat. It was nobody's seat. It was to be voted by the councillors that were there. Now, what Councillor Kilgan failed to mention yesterday, while she was name-checking myself and Joe and Eddie Fennessy, is that during the last term, uh, two of her colleagues in Fianna Fáil, uh, Conor Tormey and uh, Porrig Fisainas, were co-opted. Uh, she also fails. Better just say that she is an independent councillor. I think. Uh, yeah. I don't know whether she's independent anymore. She's part of the technical group. Uh, Mike, be quite honest. Okay. Uh, independence only lasted coming up to the election, but she forgot to mention that she tried to get co-opted herself in 2012, but couldn't to an independency because she was a member of a party. She forgot to mention then that her son was co-opted, so she's very selective and trying to justify this. This despicable decision that was made on Monday by trying to it's, it's point directions elsewhere, trying to bring in this co-option element. It was not a co-option. Right. Uh, and, I, I, you know, the comment she made there that there's people in the chamber who weren't elected. I've been elected in 2014. I was elected in 2019. Yes, I was co-opted in 2009, but I was on the ballot paper in 2009. I was beaten by six votes for the last seat. Mm. So it isn't a case that I was just pulled out of the air and added on by Fine Gael. I was at the election. I was the last man standing. Likewise with Lisa Meller. And what should have happened, what should have happened in a normal, natural justice manner is that the next person on the list should have got the, should have, should have got the seat. And we tried we, everything we could in Fine Gael to facilitate that. I've never voted for Fianna Fáil uh, before and I've never voted for them again. We gifted them the opportunity to do the right thing, get their candidate across the line. It didn't matter whether they had an extra candidate or not. And to listen to Tommy Riley talk about he didn't know the girl. I mean, I know everyone that was running for us in our party, and I thought that was disingenuous. The same as independency, when he knew it wasn't independency, was disingenuous. 
So that's where I took exception with it, uh, Michael. And mm. I appreciate the opportunity to clarify that. Okay, well, when you said there was an independent seat, it's because it was won by an independent candidate, namely Sharon Kogan, who won two seats. And she is prohibited from taking both seats under the Local Government Act and could choose one or the other. Uh, when you say that the seat wasn't filled, it, it was the seat she decided not to fill, if you like. She refused. She, she, she rejected the seat. She could only take one or the other, yeah. Yeah, so therefore it was no longer an independent seat. She rejected the opportunity to take that seat to represent the people of Ashburn if she canvassed her. Mm. If she made a promise to take a constitutional challenge. And then as soon as she's across the line, she takes the town town. Mm. And you heard her yesterday yourself, Michael. This is all about Kyogen for me. This is nothing to do with it. Amanda Smith has been elected in here, and I fully accept that. And I wish her the very, very best, and I'm sure she'll be a terrific mm. councillor. But let's not kid ourselves here. This is Kyogen for me. This is what's going on here. And she mentioned it several times on, 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 on your show. This is about a general election. And the business that was done on Monday, which related to the county council, was actually a, a, undemocratic, I believe. Undemocratic. Now, it was by the, by, by the laws. There was mentions of deals and what have you. Do you know something, Michael? Deals happen every time a council uh, gets, gets uh, formed. Mm. Uh, you know, so I wouldn't even mm. go down that road. Deals happen. But if... My well, knowledge. I've never seen yeah. a deal well, where a candidate was thrown up. You, you, you're expressing your opinion. We heard no, Sean Kogan's opinion yesterday. We heard Joe Bonner's opinion. We heard Tommy Riley's opinion. Uh, if it had been the other way around and Lisa Meller had got the seat, uh, we'd have heard different opinions. Uh, and uh, people will always say it's right or wrong, and that's uh, yeah. the subjective yeah. nature of these things. It's some pretty sense that, 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 that Fine Gael would vote for a Fianna Fáil candidate and a Fianna Fáil and vote a, against their own candidate. That's unprecedented. And it descended into pantomime. Uh, yeah. And there's no doubt about that. And people are genuinely upset about this. Uh, outside of those uh, who are involved in the campaigns and the political parties or uh, those who are looking for office or to go into general elections or whatever it is, uh, and people are saying, look, we voted for somebody and our vote is being ignored, not just in County Meath, uh, but elsewhere, as we heard uh, in County Loud uh, with Kevin Callan in a, a similar situation. But the problem is the local Government Act, isn't it? Agree with you 100%. It has to be revised. Because you can't. That will have to change. Nobody has done anything wrong. Uh, but if people no. if people don't like it, uh, well then the law needs to change because by law you can stand in as many areas as you want but you can only take the seat in one. Well I think Joe uh, Bonner, who was, who was exceptional in the chamber, I thought he made a very, very good point. He could have run in three areas and he could have been successful in three areas. That has to change. This is a very, very dangerous precedent for local government. And that will have to change, and this and, and this will will make a change. Unfortunately, it's too late. Uh, we can't change it now. Uh, we can't we can't go back in time. But if we had electronic voting, uh, and on the day uh, Sharon Kyogen was deemed unelected, if she didn't have a three-day period or whatever to, to make a decision as to which seat she'd take, and she was deemed unelected, you would have distributed Sharon Kyogen's votes, and somebody who was on the ballot paper would have been elected. In this case, somebody who wasn't on the ballot paper has now filling his seat. And as I say, I have nothing against this 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 uh, this new new councillor and I'll give her all the respect that she's entitled.
tight to the council. I have a funny feeling there's somebody sitting somewhere listening to us at the moment saying, I never thought I'd like the idea of electronic voting, but (laughs) maybe maybe you've made the argument for them. All right, Jerry, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Michael. Thank you indeed. Uh, That's Finnegale Councillor Jerry O'Connor, who brings our programme to us. Conclusion today, our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, let me remind you there'll be a podcast as usual of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Maggie McGuire and Nicole Duff for researching today. Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.